Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my remarks to the Orem, Utah chapter of Rotary International, focused on my new book, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation uh, to join all of you. This is my first time at a Rotary meeting, uh, so it's fun to see the inner workings and and learn a little bit more about it. Uh, and uh, you you all are doing a, a good work. So and I'm a big believer that leaders are not born; that they um, they develop through the crucible of of hard, sustained work and effort over time. And that it's it's truly the sustained effort in small ways each and every day that will lead us to do great things and to, to have a big impact with our people and organizations uh, in our communities, etc. And it sounds like that's you know in in uh, that that's consistent with the values of Rotary and and some of the things I heard heard you uh, talking about as we were getting started today. First, I wanted to introduce my family. Um, so. I've been married to my wife, Jackie, for 18 and a half years, and I have six children. Um, the youngest is seven. The oldest is 17, and uh, so two in high school, one in junior high, and three in elementary school. And it, like for everyone else, it's been a really interesting time uh, during COVID, and we had everyone home schooling um, last spring and in the fall. Uh, we decided with the vaccine coming out that uh, we were going to send all the kids back um, after Christmas. So they're all now back at school full time and really loving that um, after being home for 10 months. And uh, and actually, it's kind of nice for my wife and I as well. Uh, it was quite hectic <laughs> um, helping six kids with homeschool and, and uh, working and everything as well. My wife also teaches at UVU. She is a math professor. And, uh, and I teach uh, in the organizational leadership department. I'm the department chair, and I do work with the Center for Social Impact and the Center for the Study of Ethics on campus as well. And as Clark mentioned, um, you know, again, the book, this is available. So if anyone's interested, after we have a conversation around some of the topics in the book today, uh, you know, it's available on Amazon and such. Uh, so I thought I'd start with the word alchemy, um, and people have asked me why I chose the word alchemy to describe what I, I believe to be truly remarkable leadership. And you're probably all familiar with with the term and its origins, but it's really the the medieval forerunner of this this combination of chemistry, a mixture of of the arts, speculative philosophy, and, and physical sciences. And it's the, the idea that you're going to take something that's already precious 
and you're going to alchemize it and turn it into something that's even more precious. And in medieval times, for example, they con- they were always trying to find some new alchemy um, to create gold, for example. So you think about how this might apply to individuals. Um, each of us comes to the table with our own socialization and our own innate talents. Um, and ultimately, we we get to choose what we make of what we've been given and how we uh, capitalize on it and maximize the potential that we might have. And as leaders, we do the same thing, not just for ourselves, but for those that we work with for our team. And we want them to be able to fulfill their potential. And so this alchemy is us trying to figure out how to take these core components that we already have that are pretty wonderful and to make them into something that's even better, uh, that ultimately we can leverage to make a difference in the world. Uh, Before we launch into some of the topics in the book, I thought I would just briefly um, share my perspective on the shifting nature of work. Uh, I I do, as Clark mentioned, I do a lot of um, research around work and organizations, both in the U.S. but uh, internationally as well. And up until a couple of years ago, I would say the vast majority of my writing uh, has all been just completely academic in nature. Um, Lots of of, uh, books and academic articles um, and things like that that are for an academic audience, uh, presentations at conferences, all just very academic, research-oriented. Um, and a couple years ago, I, I started thinking, well, it's it's nice to be able to make contributions to, to the science of it, but, um, you know, there's only a small subset of the population that actually looks at academic journals. Uh, most people don't do that for fun in their spare time. And so, like, what can I do to start getting the message out to a broader audience and practitioners so that they might be able to have the, the chance to, the, the, these findings might ha- be able to have a chance to make an impact in their lives and the lives of their people. Um, and so that's really what I've been focusing on the last couple years uh, while I continue to do some research. And all of this comes into play with this the shifting nature of work. We, ha- we see all these technological innovations and disruptions um, the pandemic has only highlighted and accelerated the process of us getting into this um, shifting work uh, where people are, are doing it more remotely and work from home and leveraging technologies like Zoom uh, and others uh, in order to, to uh, continue to be productive and get the work done. And that isn't going to just magically shift back as soon as the pandemic's over. We were already moving that direction. The pandemic just kind of pushed us that way even faster. And uh, now everyone's talking about, well, what's the new mix going to be? Not that we're going to go back to physically working in a physical workspace, but what's the hybrid mix going to look like where we have some people coming into the office, we have other people working completely remotely, we have some people coming in one or two days a week and working remotely, and what does that all look like and how do we do that all effectively? Um, So that's part of the issue with technologies and kind of the shifting geopolitical and socioeconomic conditions in the world that um, are going to make, you know, the very definition of organizations and the nature of work and how we effectively lead those organizations. That's all going to be um, shifting uh, in the coming years, in the coming decades. Uh, Here's just a list. I mean, this is a a small list among many um, disruptive technologies that are going to fundamentally disrupt labor markets and organizations. So how we define 
um, our teams uh, and how we work together, how we define the nature of our organizations and uh, what those look like. So things, I mean, robotics isn't new. We've had uh, robotics making an impact for a long time, but they're getting more, the robotics are more and more sophisticated, electric uh, and self-driving cars, pharmacogenetics, uh, quantum entanglement, which is if you haven't like explored uh, quantum entanglement, that's a super fascinating topic uh, to look into uh, that could disrupt uh, a lot of the uh, the telecoms uh, industry and and have sweeping implications for business. Uh, virtual presence, blockchain, auto translation, aut- augmented reality, um, artificial intelligence, etc. There's there's just so many things, and we could take a long time talking about each of these and there's many many more examples as well um, that all of these put together are simply um, causing a shift and just like we've seen throughout the industrial revolution into you know we've gone in stages and many people are calling this that they're saying that we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution right now this technology this technology driven revolution with um computers and artificial intelligence uh, driving increased automation. Um, as we've seen in throughout the history, whenever these types of big disruptions have happened um, in our economy, it has significantly shifted the nature of work, the professions, how people do their work, um, and what they even mean by uh, the, the, their relationship with their organization, their employer. So all of these things we expect to continue to, to change. Uh, and because of that, uh, I, I think there are some new skills that that people need to be developing. Uh, here you can see uh, just a small snapshot of of some of the types of skills. This is from the Institute for the Future Work, uh, excuse me, Future Future Work Skills uh, 2020, um, and they're looking at on the outer ring all these these macro drivers of these shifts that are going to be happening. Um, super structured organizations, globally interconnected world, uh, new media ecology with all the social media as just one example, um, the rise of smart machines, uh, shifting demographic changes with extreme longevity and an increasingly computational world. And so uh, with this organization, they specifically pointed out these uh, these eight different core skills that are going to be needed in this shifting landscape. So increased cognitive load management, virtual collaboration, new media literacy, cross-cultural competence, uh, novel and adaptive thinking, sense-making, design mindset, and transdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity. Um, And again, we could probably go into each of those and have a really fun discussion about what each of those means and where you see evidence of some of these things already um, really gaining um, some traction in organizations. And the prediction is that, you know, these, these are going to be even more and more important in the coming years uh, as, as we face these global shifts and the, the, the shifts in the nature of work. Okay, so now with all that as a, a bit of a foundation, I just want to share a few um, pieces of what I cover in the book. And I start off with this personal model of leadership that... I, I was sitting in a graduate course like 17 years ago. Uh, it was a graduate leadership course. And we were talking about all these different theories of leadership. And there's a bunch. And there's lots of research to, you know, support and back up these different theories. Um, but, you know, all of them, as I was sitting there listening, I was getting kind of bored. Because, frankly, all of them, 
I felt like were lacking. Um, all of them tried to claim to be the answer, like the, 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 the quick fix recipe to solve all your organizational problems. And even at that young age, I, you know, I'd already experienced enough to realize I just don't think there's any simple solutions to any, you know, problem of uh, any magnitude. And uh, I thought it was rather silly to, to have this idea of, of, of a simple model that could, could uh, solve everything. Um, so I, you know, I kind of tuned out, frankly, and I started to jot down my own thoughts around um, leadership. And, and this is essentially what I came up with that day. Um, and I've only, you know, tweaked it slightly since then. And it's, it's continued to resonate with me over time. And since that time, I've read more and studied more and done more research and, and really have grown into my underlying philosophy of servant leadership being at the core of what I think uh, effective, sustainable leadership needs to look like within organizations. So as I, you know, at the top of the screen, you see the intersection of leadership and service. I think you can't effectively lead people um, in a sustainable way without serving them and trying to help them achieve their greatest potential. Um, You can certainly generate short-term results with people, without having a, a servant leader type of uh, mentality, but it's really hard to drive commitment and ongoing loyalty and, and engagement and effort from people uh, if they don't feel like they can trust you, they don't feel like uh, you are committed to their development, they don't feel like um, uh, you're, you're someone um, worth their time and effort, right? And so, I think the servant leadership idea is is essential, and this is how I make sense of it. So it starts with up in the upper corner, self knowledge and understanding. If you don't know yourself and you haven't come to terms with who you are, what makes you tick, um, what motivates you, um, and if you don't don't really do the the hard work of of critical self reflection. Um, to understand who you are, it's going to be really hard to understand those you lead and serve um, because we all just project all of our garbage onto those around us if we don't really know ourselves first. Uh, and we don't know we're even doing it unless we uh, do that kind of self-reflection first. But as we do that wor- that inner work and we understand ourselves better, then we can develop greater uh, empathy and compassion for those um, that we work with and we can have a, a better understanding for who they are and what motivates them and makes them tick. And the more we know about others and the more interactions we have with them, the more we learn about ourselves and it's just an ongoing process. Um, so while that's happening, we also have to develop some uh, particular leadership skills, abilities, and, and capabilities. I, I mean, there are like technical skills that we need to gain to be able to be effective in certain jobs. Um, We do need to be able to learn, um, you know, certain communication skills. We need to learn how to effectively, um, you know, deal with uh, organizational issues and and budget issues and all that kind of stuff. That is part of what it means to be an organizational leader. Um, So we do have to develop those skills. But in my mind, that's not at the heart of really what being a great leader is. Um, Those are just necessary but not sufficient skills that you need. Uh, and then ultimately, over time, we apply those skills and abilities to leading and serving those around us, and that generates feedback loops in which we, we learn more about ourselves and others, and it's just this ongoing process. So I don't think there's any 
quick fix. There's no easy answer. There's no way, there's no prescriptive kind of an approach that we can just do these things and all of a sudden we're going to become a great leader. But it's the, it's the hard work of just doing the necessary things day in and day out over time to develop trust, develop relationships, know yourself and others, develop your skills, put them into practice, and then continue in an iterative fashion to learn and grow and become better. Um, so that's the, 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 the main premise, really, of, of the book. And then I go into to different uh, aspects of it that I believe are important and have been important in my life. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. Ordinary, everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Uh, the first one I wanted to talk about was um, Chulam Jie. I served an LDS mission years ago in South Korea and uh, really quickly learned to love the Korean people and the language and the culture. And uh, one of the things uh, that I quickly learned was that, the, that they have all of these really cool idioms um, and proverbs, and uh, many of them are derived from Buddhist or Confucius teachings. Um, and this one, Chulam Jie, uh, literally means bluer than indigo. And try to imagine from an Eastern philosophy, imagine... Um, the, the deference they give to authority, to the elderly, um, to teachers. The idea here is that indigo is the bluest of blues. It's not, you know, we typically don't go around using indigo to describe color in our day-to-day -day lives. But indigo means the, the bluest of blues. And if we want someone to become uh, bluer than indigo, uh, this is reference to a teacher or a leader who is already great, um, who we give a lot of reverence to, and that the goal, the main goal of that teacher, that leader, is to help those that he or she leads and serves to become bluer than indigo, to become greater than themselves. And everything they do is about developing the people around them in order to, to, cre to generate that kind of a capacity uh, and to improve on their capabilities so that that eventually they can uh, they can hand off the baton and the next generation is even better than they were. Um, that really resonated with me. I think it fits really well with the the idea of servant leadership. And ultimately, what I 
have seen again and again in my own research as to how you drive higher levels of employee engagement, employee satisfaction, um, productivity, and and ultimately get more innovation and better outcomes from your people. It's when you invest in them. It's when you are committed to developing your people. And this is a bit counterintuitive, particularly in Western culture, where a lot of times leaders leadership is kind of an ego-driven um, kind of a mentality where someone's in a position of leadership because they're seen as the exceptional person who's particularly capable or skilled. Everyone needs to look at to them as the authority, as the, the, the one that has the answers. Uh, and because it's this necessarily kind of a e- ego-driven, um, you know, bottom-up um, approach, rather I should say top down really where the bottom is looking up towards the leader um, since it's that kind of a, a mentality this this seems counterintuitive to a lot of leaders uh, yet the research shows again and again if you want really great uh, organizations this is exactly the approach that you need to take oh um I I then talk a lot about um, leading with a growth mindset and creating a growth culture within an organization. The truth of the matter is we all have stuff that we have to deal with in life. Uh, We all have our baggage. We all have setbacks. You know, some of us enjoy more privilege in life than others. Others are extremely disadvantaged and have a lot to overcome, um, while others not as much. But the reality is we all have hard things and we all have to learn you know, and decide how we're going to respond to those those hard things. Do we turn them into um, stepping stones to to learn and grow, or do they become barriers to our continued development? And here you see in in the graphic, you know, when you have a fixed mindset, the idea is, you know, it is what it is. Like you're born into a situation, you're born with a certain amount of talent and capabilities. And that's not really going to change. Your intelligence is static. And when you have a fixed mindset and say you come from a disadvantaged um, upbringing and perhaps, you know, certain things don't come easy to you, uh, it's really easy to just feel stuck. And when you feel stuck, oftentimes it will, you're usually not doing anything to really stretch and grow. Um, and you are also uh, more inclined to avoid uh, risk and challenges and things that could end up proving to be failure because the way you view failure uh, is that it's a, a representation of who you are. Uh, it's it's totally different when we have a growth mindset. When we have a growth mindset, we see every failure, in fact, not really as a failure, but it's an opportunity for growth. And it's the inter- the iterative learning process that we go through. So we learn little by little and develop. And then over time, you know, as we as we look back years from now, um, you know, we can look back and see the, the tremendous amount of growth that that we've encountered. Um, when we have a growth mindset, we're not afraid to um, make mistakes. We're not afraid uh, to have a setback. We're not afraid to fail because the very way we define failure, um, it doesn't even resonate when you have a growth mindset uh, because you see it as truly an opportunity. So early on in the book, I talk about servant leadership and creating a growth culture and leading um, with a growth mindset. Uh, And then I get into uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and the importance of that. And and to Clark's point, I think 
uh, as we move into the future. I mean, this is already important. It huge. It resonates um, with individuals and with organizations. Uh, but it, as we have increasingly diverse workforce, we we just have to do more to to make it ever present in our organization and truly be committed to it. Um, so, in in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion. And, and here you see in the Venn diagram how they overlap. And that's what I call belonging. I think all of those are really important. To do that, though, I, want, I do want to set it up. I want to share it with you, this, this other Korean proverb. Um, so this one uh, means frog in a well. And try to imagine for a moment that you uh, are a frog that is born and raised at the bottom of a well. Your, your whole world, your existence is that you live at the bottom of this well. Um, in that condition, you know, it's cold, it's dark, it's wet, uh, you're, you're, you're stuck, you're trapped. But you probably don't realize you're stuck and trapped, right? Because that's your whole world. That's all you have ever known. Um, in Eastern, this is the Eastern perspective. It's very similar to Plato's allegory of the cave, if any of you happen to be familiar with that. Um, the whole idea is over time we realize as we experience more of the world, that uh, our upbringing, while you know we're socialized in a particular way and, and we have values that are deemed important and, and we accept social norms and, and we behave in certain ways, um, we, we start to realize that it's one small slice of how we can view the world. Uh, just like a frog at the bottom of a well, we're all raised in a household you know, with you know, a particular culture, a particular set of values. And that's that's our existence. That's our worldview. That's what we know. Um, but I think education, maturity, the whole process of interacting with those who are unlike ourselves, that are different than ourselves, it's like rising up the well. And over time, you get higher and higher, and you get to see more and more of the sky. And eventually, you get to the very top, and you peer your little frog head out, out the top of that well, and you realize that there's this huge beautiful world out there. There's a, the, the vastness of the sky, the, the landscape, the mountains, the streams, all the animal life. You have all these beautiful things, that none of which you ever had the, the chance to experience when you were st stuck at the bottom of a well and you didn't even realize you were stuck. You also start to look out and you, you realize that there's also wells all over the landscape and you see little frogs peeking their heads out from each of those wells also. And as you start to interact with some of these different frogs, you realize that just like you had your own upbringing and your own existence, they also had the same kind of thing, but they had a different set of values perhaps or different norms and ways that they were socialized. Um, you might even go around and explore these other wells and, and uh, you know, find value in those. Um, we, we experience that and the more we interact with difference and the more we interact with those who, you know, um, come from different backgrounds, uh, the, the more we realize that both our upbringing had value, but it also had some limitations. And we can now embrace more to bring greater richness to how we understand the world. Um, some people uh, get really nervous. They, get, uh, they feel threatened as they start to rise up the well because they start to realize no longer are they safe. Uh, there's predators out there. There's, there's other animals that might try to eat them. And even though they were stuck and cold and wet at the bottom of their well, it's what they knew and understood. 
and to get out of their well means they're they're they have to relearn things and they have to they have to bring in new ways of understanding different components of the world um, that might challenge the way they previously understood um, how the world worked. And so a lot of frogs just go back down into their own well uh, and they and they live out their life comfortable uh, in their well. Others decide that they end up, you know, exploring other wells and they decide a, a different well is the one that they want to go live in and find safety and security in that well that's new and unique and different than their upbringing. Uh, and then still others, I would say a much smaller uh, percentage, um, they actually decide that, you know what, the world's kind of a big, scary place, but it's wonderful and beautiful, and they just embrace the messiness and the ambiguity, and they're happy to just spend the rest of their life exploring um, everything that the, the world has to offer. And Koreans use this proverb, you know, in relation to um, diversity and inclusive types of topics, as well as just cognitive difference and understanding how we make sense of the world. And if, if, if a Korean person says you're like a frog in the well, that's not a complimentary statement. That's saying that you're basically like walking around life with blinders on where you have a really narrow perspective and you're not willing to look at other things outside of your narrow point of view. Um, and a lot of, you know, I, I look at it in terms of ideologies and dogmas. Um, we all, you know, have certain biases um, in the way we think and understand things. And, you know, our well is kind of our set of ideologies and dogmas. And we might end up even trading one set of ideologies and dogmas for another and go into a different well. And I think as this whole discussion around um, diversity, equity and inclusion and then belonging is the importance of not, you know, we don't need to get rid of our upbringing and our, the values that we had, uh, that we that we learned as, as we were young, but we, we do need to learn to embrace the richness and the value of everyone else, everyone else's lived experience in their own well that they also grew up in. Um, and if we can't do that, then we can't coexist very peacefully. And we, we really don't have much of a chance of, of leveraging the collective genius of people within organizations if we can't start to see each other, you know, with, with that kind of a lens. <clears throat> this, this then comes into what Clark was referring to, you know, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the way I look at it, you know, diversity is getting different identities represented in the organization. But diversity in, in, in and of itself doesn't really do anything. You can have a super diverse um, workforce where you have gender equity and you have racial ethnic diversity and sexual orientation diversity, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, if if they're just people who are there with nothing else, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, inclusion starts to lead towards this idea that we need to really uh, promote the way of thinking and the perspectives that individuals matter within this collective context. And we need to value the contributions of each individual. And we get eventually, if we, if we do this successfully as leaders, we generate a culture where there's a sense of belonging, where everyone feels genuinely valued, needed, wanted uh, with a, with a opportunity to contribute in meaningful ways. When we have that kind of a culture in place within an organization where people truly belong, they're more committed uh, they, they're more loyal, they work harder, uh, they're more productive, they're more engaged, they innovate more. All of the like positive things that we want to see within organizations, ultimately that's the why behind it. 
and so it's not enough to focus on diversity. That's just like the first step. And if you don't have diversity first, it's going to be really hard to, you know, move towards equity and then inclusion and then get to belonging. Um, and, and that's today, that's where a lot of organizations find uh, themselves uh, kind of stuck. Like they're, they've been focusing on diversity for a long time. They haven't really moved the needle um, towards more inclusion and belonging types of cultures and atmospheres. Another problem with diversity, the way it often gets discussed, is we start to think about people with different demographic characteristics or a monolith. And we say, we describe, um, you know, uh, people of color all as like, as if they agree, <laughs> you know, and they all think the exact same way. That's obviously not the case. Um, uh, that that uh, all men think one way, all women think another way. That's obviously not the case. And the same thing applies to us individually. Like, we're so much more complicated than that. Um that we, we're a mix, we're a complex mix of motivations uh, and and biases, a lot of them some subconscious, like we're not even aware of all the stuff. And so that's why we, we just have to do that inner work of trying to understand ourselves. And even, even spending years trying to do that, we're still going to have blind spots and gaps that we just don't even recognize. So we just do the best we can. And then realizing that, yeah, we're, in some ways, we're probably going to be closed-minded. In other ways, we're going to be much more um, willing to question and to explore. Um, and I think that's how it is for everybody. Like, you, you find the most, like, progressive type of person who says that they're constantly trying to um, be open-minded. I guarantee you they still have things that they're pretty darn closed-minded about. Um, and... And so all of this is just to say, and it's really a, something I urge my students, uh, organizations I do consulting work with, that I just, you know, this, there's no like endpoint to this. It's, it's a constant effort and we have to push ourselves consistently um, always. And it's, we're never going to get to the finish line. Uh, it's, it's about the journey. It's about the process. And, uh, and you know, you're going to look back. Like I think of myself 10 years ago. Um, I think I was a pretty intelligent, open-minded person 10 years ago, but I look at, you know, now I look back at myself 10 years ago and I'm, I like, am kind of embarrassed by myself, <laughs> you know, and certain things that I might've said or done or whatever. And I suspect in 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and think the same thing about my 41 year old self. Um, and I think that's just the way it is. Like we just, that we just uh, continue to learn and grow and, not, you know, don't get too caught up in the mistakes because it's just part of the human condition, um, but try to do a little bit better. And as we do that, we're going to impact the lives of the people in our organizations, in our communities, in our homes, and we're going to help them have greater success themselves. Thank you, everybody. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.